very familiar Christian ethic. It's a foundational motivator which beats in the heart of every saved person. An obligation, a loving response, gratitude, joy, endless devotion because of a felt indebtedness to the God who didn't, you know, throw himself over us and be and was saved and spared himself, but who threw himself over us and was mangled while we escaped. The great exchange, I'm forgiven, you were forsaken, I'm accepted, you were condemned, I'm alive, your spirit lives within me because you died and rose again. You know, our saving necessitated the loss of the hero's life because he was our stand-in for the wrath of God for those who have sinned. And since we have all fallen short and have all sinned, he was the payment plan for all of us so that we could be right with God. He is our hero. And very true, amazing love shown draws out of us amazing devotion in return, or, or so it should. You would think that somebody who would save our lives, and it cost them great harm and suffering, that we would think kindly and wish to devote ourselves to that person, be devoted to that person who saved us. Now, this is where Paul the Apostle lives, His understanding is seen in many verses tonight, our text, but in other verses as well, Romans 12, 1, it says, you know, in light of everything God has done for you in the last 11 chapters that I've just told you about, Romans 1 through 11, in light of 11 chapters of God's blessing to you, I plead with you to surrender everything to this God, to be a living sacrifice to him in view of 11 chapters of what he's done for you. He saved you and called you and glorified you. and uh, All of these blessings. In light of that, respond. And and so Paul lives in this kind of obligated uh, devotion to Christ out of a sense of gratitude and joy and obligation to the one who has saved him. In view of what God has done for me, I lay down my life for him because he laid down his life for me. So here we are at our text. It's just a couple sentences. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. We have it on the screen for you because we're all going to say it together. The um, software for the worship songs. You fixed it. Nice. It usually likes to capitalize every first word, but they figured out a way to to defeat the brain on the software. All right, we're going to say it together, all right? Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We're going to leave that up there just as I teach from this passage. It's a very moving passage to me. One of the most moving passages personally and most important passage to me in the New 
Testament, uh, speaking personally to me. Uh, it is one of the very first scriptures 31 years ago that I learned and memorized. Um, it's very important, and it's really along these lines that the Christian life is a response, a loving response where we lose all because Christ has lost all for us. And in losing all, we find everything. We find true life. And so we're going to take a look at this text. But before we consider what Paul means by it, because it's kind of, if you think about it, it's kind of a mystical kind of thing. I mean, how can you, you know, I've been crucified, really. (laughs) Well, you look pretty good for being crucified. Uh, It's just a a very profound and spiritually discerned Verse, And we're going to talk about that before we consider what the words mean and how they relate to us. Let's consider the context. If you're taking notes, Roman numeral one, context. When I went to seminary, they taught me, and I've said this many times, a text without a context is a pretext. In other words, if you wrestle a, a text out of its context, you can make it say anything you want it to say. You must understand a text like this in context to the text and the verses which surround it. Not only which surround it, but then the chapter and then the book and then how that book fits into the New Testament and how the New Testament fits in with the Old Testament. It's the whole thing. And so a little context will help us. The Galatian churches were inundated with false teachers called Judaizers and uh, from the word to make one Jewish. And they uh, believed that grace and faith was not enough to be saved. You had to become Jewish, thus Judaizer, right? So Paul was really, the whole letter of Galatians is born to save the Galatians from these false teachers who have swept into town to Galatia. And said, look, folks, we're really glad that you have faith in Christ, but you're going to have to eat kosher foods. You're going to have to keep Jewish holy days. You're going to have to offer some sacrifices. You're going to have to live righteously. What about the Ten Commandments? Not to mention the 609 other commands that God has for us. Paul the Apostle said, it's our justification is by justification means a complete pardon as if you never committed the crime. Justification, as my teachers taught me, just as if I never sinned. Just as if I never sinned based on what? Based on grace, faith, trust, plus nothing. Hence, gospel, good news. That is the good news. (laughs) The good news is everything for nothing. What you bring to the table is your sin, your hopelessness, your helplessness, your depravity, your guilt, your shame, your rebellion. That's your contribution to this. The way you qualify for eternal life is to admit that you're a total loser. (laughs) That's how you qualify. When you come and say, I've got it together, you are disqualified from eternal life. Because you don't need a savior. You got it together. You keep the Ten Commandments. You're basically a good person. Congratulations. You're disqualified for heaven and qualified for hell. According to the Bible. 
That's an upside-down kingdom for sure. And so Paul is going to say, and just in the book of Romans, that you're saved through faith plus nothing. Just in Romans, Romans 3, 22 through um, 30. Romans 4, verses 3, 5, 11, 16. Romans 5, 1, and 9. Romans 9, verse 30. Romans 10, verses 9 through 11. Romans 11, verse 6. It goes on and on and on. That's just one book. All of those verses that I quoted says, Faith plus nothing equals salvation and eternal life. All your sins forgiven forever and ever. Amen. Nothing you can do. It's the message of the whole New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Then the New Testament takes that and unpacks that truth. Now, the Judaizers were incensed. And they said, that doesn't make sense. And now you're getting to the context of why this verse appears. It was born out of an argument from the Judaizers that says, your free grace doesn't make sense to us. Now, look at the, the, the verse here. The, verses, the very next verse, which follows the text, Verse 21 says, if we could be forgiven and set right with God by doing good stuff, then Christ died for nothing. Then the verses which preceded in verse 16 and following says, a man can never, ever, ever be saved by being good enough, but by trusting in the Lord. So the false teachers didn't buy saved by faith alone. They said, you're crazy, and here's our problem. Here's their stumbling. Paul, if it's that easy... People are going to take advantage if God freely, fully pardons bad people without requiring good deeds or works. You're encouraging people to sin. What's the point of being good if my salvation doesn't depend on it? Your doctrine will weaken a man's resolve to live morally upright. And Paul says, not if you truly understood what genuine Christian salvation means. When you get Galatians 20, justification by faith alone will make sense once you truly understand what being born again is. To the outside world, they don't get it. And because they don't understand what really happens when a person gets saved, then they can't understand how it can be strictly by grace and faith alone. It can never be, Paul is going to say, you don't have anything to worry, Judaizers. Because if you just understood, now I'm going to explain to you why you don't have a problem, why we don't have a problem, because it's a theological, spiritual impossibility for someone who does have faith in God to continue on in sin. It's not possible on many levels, and we're going to talk about that. You cannot confess your sins, trust in Christ, and live it up. You can, we see it happen, but what the Bible will say is that either that person's having a very bad season in their life and they truly are saved, or more likely, they are not saved. That's just what the Bible teaches. 
Faith in God makes continuation in a godless, sinful lifestyle theologically impossible. Paul is saying, FYI, Judaizers, Saul, the Pharisee, died. Paul, the apostle, is who I am now. There's been a death. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer the old me, I, who live, but Christ. It's all about Christ now. So if this is what it means to become saved, that there's a death of the sinner who loved sin, and then up from the ashes rises this new person who's, who's one with Christ, that Christ is in there, and he's alive differently with different values and different desires then there's no problem in glorifying God for his grace because it's physically impossible for that new person to love sin because the sinner died. I've been crucified with Christ. Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee, has been dead. He's killed. And so, therefore, point number one that this verse is teaching you, born out of... uh, an argument to say it's physically impossible to abuse grace because the true Christian cannot. Because by definition, he's new and doesn't like that stuff and has repented from that very thing. So, So first point, faith kills. Four things nailed to the cross, the Bible says. There are four things. One, obviously, Jesus Two, a sign which read, this is king of the Jews. Three, a figurative notice that says your debt is paid in full. And four, you. Over and over and over again, the New Testament says, in a mystical, spiritual sense, not just metaphorically, But in some kind of mystical, spiritual sense, everybody who ends up in heaven was in Christ when Christ died on the cross. We were in him. And now, this fundamental truth, a Scottish theologian, John Murray, called it union with Christ. It had become an entire doctrine that whenever you see in the New Testament that we're in Christ. It's this union with Christ. So in other words, when a person opens their heart to believing in the Lord, repenting of their sins, that there's a union, a mystical, spiritual union happens with your soul in Jesus Christ. You are united. Christ is in you. You are entangled and enmeshed in the living God, in the Savior. And now in this union, guess what? You, you are joined to him in his death. Therefore, the Bible says this about your life. You died. You died because Christ died. And when Christ died, you as a believer were in him. Your life is over. Your old life, I should say. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, which I read at every baptism. Listen to your union, what really happened to you. You didn't just find religion one day. You didn't decide one day, you know what, I'm going to be a nicer person, a kinder, gentler me this year. It's not, not what happened to you. This is what happened to you. Well then, Paul says, should we keep on sinning so that God's uh, grace can become more and more? 
Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by spiritual baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Joined mystically in some way. When Jesus was on the cross 2,000 years ago, in some God mysterious way, I was in him. You were in him, and those who were in him were sealed forever. Now, in 1979, I died. Sometimes you die slowly to come to faith in Christ, and sometimes you just have a coronary, and you just fall over like the Apostle Paul. He was a heart attack kind of conversion. One minute he's going to kill a Christian, and the next minute he's worshiping the Lord strengthening the church, and building up the faith he once tried to destroy. In 1979, as I tell you almost every other week now, because it's a part of my testimony, I I was on a dance floor, and there was a body that fell as I had an experience. I opened my heart to the... it, It came knocking. I opened. I heard him. And I responded. I could have gone back in the bar. I walked out of the bar with my brother, and I prayed the sinner's prayer as best as I could. God, you're right. I'm wrong. I'm walking with you. In an instant, a 19-year-old, unchurched, immoral in every way, drug-abusing, alcohol-using, immoral person, no faith at all, zero, no upbringing, nothing, immediately, I knew right from wrong. In a second, I knew exactly what I needed to stop doing. In one second, my eyes were open, and I was this person. I went home to an apartment with evil roommates. I knew as soon as I opened the door, evil. I had the willies. I could only live there four days. I went to work the next day. I was a bank teller. I went to work. It was all wrong. I saw everything different. I was a different person. This is salvation. Whether that comes the Timothy way from hearing Bible stories on the lap of grandma and mommy, and it comes gradually, and your eyes open, there's a death. That one's a little bit harder to find. But usually, even with church kids, you'll hear the testimony. You know what? I was raised in the church, but it wasn't until... And then you hear the story. I was in college, or I was at 13. I was 13, I was at youth camp. Or, you know, you hear the story when they really got it, that, and the death became really obvious to them, that the person that, that they are as a sinful human being is parted from them because of their maybe long-lasting relationship with Christ. And so, so Paul really is pinning his own obituary here. I mean, I'm dead. I'm, my life's done. What it means to be a Christian, Judaizers, 
is not a chance to go to heaven and live it up while we can and abuse God's grace. You guys don't even understand. I'm dead. You don't even know the old me. This is a new me that would never want to do that in the first place. So he says, I've been crucified with Christ. And I want to add here, since I have your attention and you're listening so well, you must have been here on Sunday. It was about listening well, you know. Anyway, and not texting during the sermon. (laughs) I didn't call them out-out. I just said they're among us, somebody here. (laughs) Anyway, some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Moving on. I want to say this, that it's more than me not wanting to go back to that lifestyle. You couldn't pay me enough money. I never went into a disco again, ever again, ever in my entire life nor a bar to get drunk, never again, never again used any kind of drug from one second, boom, done. What, what, what is that? It's the Lord, but here's what John says about it. It's not that I didn't want to, it's that I'm unable to. Listen, but when people keep on sinning, first, first John chapter 3, It shows that they have a connection to the evil one who has been sinning since the beginning. John just puts it out there, folks. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them, so they cannot keep sinning because they are children of God and God's seed is planted in them. Therefore, it is a theological impossibility for you to to say, I am an adulterating Christian. I am a fornicating Christian. I am a Christian who gossips every day or slanders every day or swindles every day. I am a sexually immoral Christian who has embraced sinful activity. He says, it just, it can't happen because God got planted in you. God's not like that. God's taken over the place. If you're one with Christ and Christ is in there, you can have slip-ups. You have a sinful nature, and we're going to talk a little bit about that problem. But he says, your old life, you have died over and over again. I counted 10 times where the Bible in the New Testament says, don't you realize you have died? Died to sin. You were in Christ. You come in. And Christ comes into you, and the old me is dead and gone, and now it must stay dead and gone. Now, the Greek word for, I, phrase I should say, I have been crucified with Christ, is in the perfect tense in the Greek, which means it's not just a past event. What happened in the past has a powerful play in today has a powerful impact today. So the tense is saying, I, I'm being crucified with Christ. Now, what does that mean? Here's what it means. He's saying, not only at some time in the past, Paul was cru- crucified with Christ, but that that continues on in some capacity um, because, as Miracle Max said of Wesley and Princess Bride, 
when they, when they, when they, and I've used this a lot, when they haul him in, he thinks he's dead, and Miracle Max says, you know what, you're fortunate. You know why? Because he's not all the way dead, he's mostly dead. And mostly dead means slightly alive. <laughs> now, when Paul says all Christians in a real way have been crucified with Christ, we've been unplugged from sin and evil, we are mostly dead, which means it is slightly alive. That's why Jesus Christ says, if you want to make this thing happen, you must do a couple things. One, get very used to saying no to yourself. First, deny yourself. Get used to saying no to yourself. Two, get used to dying to things you might like but are inconsistent with Christian faith. Pick up your cross and then stay very close to me. Why? Because you're mostly dead, slightly alive. And if that thing gets a little fanning, it will jump up and shipwreck you. Now, if Christ came in and joined with you, you are eternally secure. But if you do not apply the principle of being crucified and reckon whatever belongs to your sinful nature as dead, which you have been given the power and the command to do, you will have a forest fire and you'll burn the place down, but you yourself will be saved. I am not, you know, I have people who come up after me after I speak and say to me, you're just encouraged people right there to keep on going on because you know you're eternally secure. No, you didn't hear my whole sermon. If you are really saved and you are eternally secure, you will not live that way. You will not want to live that way. You will be living that way as a double life. You will be miserable. You will hate your life. You will be miserable until you come to the place where you, Psalm 32, I was miserable and sapped of my strength. It's in the heat of summer. Your hand was heavy on me day and night. I'm quoting Psalm 32. Until I said, I will confess my sin to the Lord. I will not hide my iniquity. That's the true believer. We can't live the double life. And that's what the Bible says. Colossians 3.5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, with which is idolatry. So he's saying, not only did you enter this way through the cross, you maintain and sustain the Christian life by reckoning those things that are inconsistent with our Christian life and dishonoring to God as dead. And the way you do it is that Christ says, you've been unplugged. All you have to do is reckon it dead, count it dead. How do you do that? What do dead people do when you tempt them? They don't do a whole lot. They really don't. You know, I could see someone talking to a dead corpse and say, you know you want to. Uh, no, I don't, because I don't even hear you. <laughs> no, you know what? He says, you know what? 
Theologically speaking, spiritually speaking, God is saying to you and to me, you have the full-on capacity to do exactly that play dead. You can say, that's dead, that's not me. It's a choice. Beware, this is a label that I read, beware that some electrical appliances may still, quote, carry a charge even when unplugged. Call a qualified repair person to service them. (laughs) It's unplugged. I've got the back off and I'm working in there. You can be electrocuted. It carries a charge. The Bible teaches this to you. You've been unplugged. You carry a charge. When you see him face to face, the charge will be extinguished forever. You will be incapable of sinning in your glorified body. And I know you're sitting here thinking, if there's a way, I'll find it in heaven to sin. (laughs) Wouldn't we all? I mean, that's how we all think, because we're so depraved. But no. Let me just kind of follow up on one more point. Thankfully, faith is more than crucifixion. It's making alive. Point two. Final point. Faith makes alive. Here's the loose paraphrase. I've been crucified with Christ, but crazy thing, I live. But I have a life. It's all about the Lord now. It's not my life to live as I please. It's a life that's been given me, which belongs to God. My faith is in him, and that determines my every move. In fact, it defines who I am. So after the death comes life. It's a happy thing. It's a liberating thing. It's a new thing. Now, you know, uh, eight years ago, the Pengrove family, the Popes, got that um, extreme makeover from ABC. They had 1,500 volunteers, and I personally know some people in here who were part of that volunteer team. Now, their little dilapidated farmhouse was demolished, and up came a $1.5 million mansion, dollar mansion. In order to get the mansion, the the house had to be demolished. They weren't very sad about that. You know, on that show, when the bus pulls away and they look at what rose from the ashes, nobody says, what? I want to go back into my little cave, my little shack. Uh, The mansion, the new house, the beauty, the prerequisite for that is the demise of the old. And the demise of the old, completely, 100%, you can't leave any bit of it. It's all bad. It all comes down. And then a new foundation. Jesus himself, he said, man, unless a grain of wheat falls and dies, it's isolated. There's no future. There's no life. There's nothing. He said, this is, follow me. There's the demise, and then there's the rise. There's always the resurrection. So he's saying, look, I'm alive. I have a life, and it's filled with joy. And it's not a bad thing. It's not a suicide. I have a life. Yes, I've died, but, uh, you know, God doesn't strip us of our hopes and our dreams, our personalities, our creativity. 
our individuality. It's a stripping away of the poison that would come against the very thing that you were meant to be. So you die, in a sense, to the corrupted part that is robbing you of the true person who you're supposed to be. That's who died. And all the good parts, all the, the, the redeemed parts. I mean, Matthew, the bookkeeper, the tax collector, is really good with that pen and keeping records, Right? And down goes his house all the way, and up comes Matthew with a pen and says, I'm good at keeping records. And, and, and Jesus says, why don't you start keeping a record of what we're doing here? And so Matthew's writing away. Yes, we die, and we deny ourselves, but the part of us that wants to destroy us, the corrupted, crazy person at the wheel, the helm, That person's got to go away and let Christ come up and take control. My God's dream, I should say, is better than anything I can concoct and come up with. God's dream for you. What comes up is so beautiful. You know, and I I looked at one of the mission guys I was baptizing there when we baptized close to 30 people. And I looked at him and I got a, a vision of him. He looked pretty beat up. It's like in his 30s, just had a, a devastating life. And I said to him, I whispered in his ear, your days of indignity are over. The old is gone, the new has come. Up will come a loving father and a loyal husband and a good hard worker. And somebody your children could be proud of. God didn't create you to, to, to live this way. To come so short. You've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you. This old person who lives down you go. And up you come. But yet I live. And the life I live now is all about Christ. Who, and I live totally for him and in a new way. I don't want anything to do with that old person. I'm a new person, and I'll live for his glory. It's a beautiful thing. Matthew 10, Jesus says, whoever finds his life, you're going to lose it. Whoever loses their life, dead, demolished, gone. And they look at those videos where they're demolishing their houses, and they laugh because, thank God, somebody finally took a bulldozer to that thing. Whoever loses his self for my sake will find who you really are because your depraved self has kept you from knowing who you are in the Lord. He says it's a really good thing. And then the last thought there is this is all about love. Do you think I found religion? Do you think I'm turned over a new leaf? I've got some, I can't do this and I can't do that. I've got to do this and I've got to do that. I've got to go to church and I've got to serve and I've got to give an offering. He says, who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, that's what I'm all about. I'm devoted to this man. Yeah, it's one thing to know in your head, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But when you start saying, God loved me, he gave himself for me. That guy on the cross dying there, that was for me. 
somebody told me they watched The Passion of the Christ and he just came apart. He was sobbing, convulsing there, and he realized that was for me. That wasn't just for the world, that was for me. And Paul just is enamored and he lives a response to, to this that was done for him in spite of what he knows about himself. I was a blasphemer. I, I, I made little kids have no daddies, Christian families. I did that. And now he's saying he could love me and give himself for that kind of guy. Watch this. Watch what I'm going to do for him out of love and out of a sense of moral obligation to the one who saved me and loves me. That's what your Christian life is about. Dying to self and sin and letting Christ come in and raise you up to be the person God created you to be and then walking with him in love and devotion as a response. So now, you know what? I can forgive you. I really can. I, I can forgive you of anything. Because I've got a lifetime of 51 years of sins washed away. And what for? For me just saying, I'm sorry. And God says, done, gone, all of them. So when you do anything to me, I can forgive you. I can love you no matter, I'm sorry, how unloving you might be. Because God loves me at my worst. My whole life and your whole life ought to be lived as a response to how God has blessed you. Therefore, I have the grace for you because I've been given the grace. And when I'm at my lowest, he is at his highest loving me. And therefore, when you're at your lowest, I could go, okay, I can be like that because I've received that. That's what he's saying. Who loved me, I can do this thing because he loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this week is just a wonderful week to reflect on that cross. It's just such a central part of who we are, knowing that it liberates us from that madman who had control, driving us into the ditch with self-centered notions and pride and ego and lust and greed and self-centeredness. Ew. We are so glad to put the spikes through that man's hands. And up, this new person, this new life, let us walk with you and embrace that new life out of love and respect for the seriousness of what you laid down by just showing up on this planet, for one, and then going through what you did. It's just awesome, God. We're all so vulnerable and sinful. Help us to be encouraged that this sermon is true, and it could be true for everybody in this room, no matter how messed up we inwardly are, unbeknownst to everybody else, nobody has fallen too far, and nobody is too sinful for your cross to liberate. So help us to cling to that old rugged cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand. Closing song. It's too complicated. And if only you knew 
about me and what I've done and what I think and what I struggle with. One prayer from a sincere heart that says, help me, God. Just help me. I don't even have to use the words. He says he understands our groaning. And boom, back, fellowship. Never make it more hard because he's made it so easy. Father, now your grace in our hearts where we are so sensitive about our own sinfulness given the wrong place at the wrong time we just sell everything down the river for our own sinfulness but yet your grace and your seed remains in us and you keep us walking and limping in the right direction we'd rather do that than to trot off um, in the wrong direction and perish so thank you God that you could take take lives like ours and cleanse us and use us and love us we just pray that you'd continue the work you've started in our hearts and lives and encourage us tonight to, to use these truths to come closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you. We will see you Friday night at 7 o'clock, then on Resurrection Sunday morning.